0: seat anywhere. got a special guest tonight, my brother-in-law Joe. And I'll just give you a little intro of why we're having a, him on the show. Two weeks ago we we're at family breakfast and we just started talking and it turned out we both had agape tattoos. And I said, there's just, it was so mind-boggling to me that someone else has agape tattooed like you gotta come on joel's bar that's the only prerequisite i need to be on this show (laughs) agape love and rebecca and i were they were just rolling at breakfast and there was so much life in what joe was saying i'm like our people need to hear this it's like um you know quantum entanglement and it's like spiritual science and it's from an angle that's different from where I come from, like Bible college glory land and Pentecostalism, but it's healthy for you guys. And so I just hope you open your minds and learn something tonight. And uh, we'll just listen to Joe talk about whatever's on his heart and we'll have a good time. Here he is.
1: Hey there, how are y'all doing? doing all right I'm known uh, when I speak turn that down. my uh, my clients uh, joke uh, usually I'm on a stage or in a big room and I like to pace right because a lot of people looking at you usually uh, provokes anxiety at least it doesn't me <laughs> so sitting very still I um, is uh gonna be a trip but we'll we'll do our best well thanks b for inviting me into your world and onto your uh into your show and welcome everybody that's here um so we don't want to talk about the spiritual Um, um I was being with a sponsee this morning, a gentleman that I mentor, and uh, we were talking about a lot of different things, and uh, I told him that I think there's maybe three kinds of approaches to everything, and uh, there's the person, one, uh, in terms of their orientation to the universe and to the world, where they see things as being empty and nihilistic. There There is nothing, right? We came from nothing. You'll extinguish into nothing, right? so number one and then there's a second person who maybe entertains the notion that the world is loving and guiding right but they're still kind of led by their own self-will right Uh, maybe they flirt you know with a loving guiding universe Um, but ultimately they succumb to their own will and uh, the universe does its thing and they do their own thing and then there's a third person who knows that the universe is loving and guiding and they they embrace that right like that becomes the centerpiece of the relationship uh with the universe and i've been all three you know full disclosure (laughs) um and uh you know it's funny today i think it takes a lot of weird courage to believe that there's that much nothingness out there right um I don't know, there was always something in my gut, uh, that there was something more than me. So I went to art school for like seven years. That's why I'm a therapist. And, uh, uh, and, um, so I like to make things, right? Like, I love to create things. And I know that that things, you know, are, is driven by intelligence. And so I look at the world, and it appears to me that the world is designed, right? And so there's got to be something driving that. So on the most basic logical level, since I was a little kid, uh, I, I thought, you know, there's got to be something out there, you know? Now, whether or not I wanted to have anything to do with that, you know, uh, yeah. So that was a long road. It was funny. I grew up in a church and, uh, you know, it wasn't a good or bad experience. Um, I remember the stillness, you know, in the church, right? Like, I I, I love that stillness, that quietude, that quiescence. Um, And there was something in there. There was something inhabiting that space. And I think I was somewhat on some unconscious level attuned to it, but I didn't have the direction. And I don't know if I was given the best picture of, like, what that was all about and how to get there right um, but my religious experience my upbringing um, it wasn't good it wasn't bad I ended up with a really unhealthy idea of what God was basically it was the relationship with my father you know the relationship with my father was not good you know and um, So when I graduated, uh, I quit going to church, and I was out on my own. I went to university. I I didn't know what I was doing, and I wasn't in any way um, prepared to live out on my own. And it was right at that same time I had been experimenting with substances my last couple of years of high school, and uh, I really hadn't got the hang of it, you know? Um, I was open to it, and it made sense to me, and I had no qualms about it, and I knew how to hide and lie from my parents and keep up appearances be a good citizen but uh it was my senior year right when I was about to go to college. I didn't even want to go. I had a college fund. My parents were like, come on, let's do this. And uh, I didn't want to. I was terrified. I knew I didn't have the inertia. I didn't have the skillfulness. I didn't have the confidence in my person to do it. And um, uh, that that year in, in uh, you know 2000, I was graduating from high school and I had some experiences with some powerful substances, amphetamine, some MDMA. That was the rage in northern Alabama where I was living at the time and where I was graduating and that just deeply resonated with me in terms of power I was like here's a higher power (laughs) I mean a spiritual experience is defined as an awareness of something bigger than yourself I like that as an inclusive definition an awareness of something bigger than myself I was a bunch of emptiness I was a fear-based creature I was a shame-based creature and when I did amphetamine when I did MDMA I felt powerful I was like "All right, I'm going to school I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do that I can do it, right? Like, where did that come from, right? It was a it was a massively uh, misinformed spiritual experience, and um, and basically for the next ten years, I chased that. You know, um, I burnt out after about three years, put myself in rehab and um you know they, they tried to plant some seeds but i wasn't open to it i wasn't willing um it's ironic because nobody made me go right it was just like i'm tapping out and okay i need help and they're like maybe look at this maybe think about this no no no, no right i know more than you i'm better than you you know and uh <laughs> Right, really? And so the, the suffering just continued, right? Um, you know, you want to understand human beings, we are, def- you know, we're profoundly shaped by long-term repeatable behavior, right? Yeah. Muscle memory, right? And, um, you know, so my orientation to the world, the way that I operated with was with the inclusion of mood altering substances. And so I could stop for a minute, stay sober for a minute, you know, but it was inevitable. It was a foregone conclusion. I was going to go back to that because that is what I had programmed my nervous system, my heart, and my spirit to do. So, you know, it was just, you know, rinse and repeat one substance after another and so you know, went up with the amphetamines and then I got addicted uh, this was the mid 2000s and down south there was no heroin it was all uh, pharmaceuticals you know and they were given Oxycontin out like it was candy right and they had pain mills dirty pain mills down in Florida and so my friends were going down there and they were dealing and everybody um, I was going to Auburn University at the time and uh, so I burnt out and, and so I turned my will and my life over to that you know and it's interesting uh there's a correlation between endorphins and positive emotions and even spiritual bliss right if you've ever been in final shavasana of a a yoga class right where you're sitting there all blissed out and you're like oh my god right um it feels good right those are beta endorphins right that's serotonin um you know, these little bits of protein uh that regulate our experience and but uh you know, it's easy to take drugs, right? They're a shortcut to a temporary positive experience because intoxication and positive emotions are regulated by the little same bits of protein, by these little chains of amino acids called neuropeptides. And it's hard to go to yoga. It's hard to live a disciplined life. It's hard to humble yourself, uh, you know, in a relationship with God. It's hard to be good to other people. It's hard to eat clean. It's hard to exercise. It's hard to live. It's hard to live a good, responsible, life right so uh the, uh, the attraction of drugs is, is pretty obvious, you know? They're a, short, a shortcut to a very powerful, fleeting spiritual experience. And um, man, I chased that with the Oxy. And um, I just didn't have it in me. I'm not the best junkie. I wasn't willing to steal or I, I'm the worst drug dealer ever, you know? And so I burnt out pretty quickly on, on that, put myself back in treatment. And um, I stayed dry for about 90 days. And I was an all day, every day kind of cat. Like, that's how I use. That's how I roll. Like, it was like it was like a suit of clothes. It was like a necessity. Um, I wasn't a binge user. I was an everyday. It was fundamental to my psyche, who I was and my relationship with you. And so I stayed dry for 90 days. I wasn't willing to change. So I was miserable. Right. You're programmed to get high and you're living life, but not doing it for whatever reason. I was irritable, restless, discontent. And um, so I decided Alabama was the problem. I'm not originally from there. I grew up military. My father was a colonel in the army, and so I moved every two years all the way through high school. I lived about six, seven different places um, before I was a sophomore in high school, and then he retired, and we ended up in Alabama. So I'm not, you know, that wasn't my home, you know, and I was never really embraced there. You know, I was a pretty weird autistic kid, and and I just didn't, <laughs> I didn't know how to get on with those folks, and so uh, so I blamed everything. Alabama I said you know Alabama the problem and so um, I decided to uh, change programs and change schools and I was like I'll move to Chicago they don't have drugs in Chicago <laughs> right <laughs> and um so i moved up to chicago and uh i was kind of in this weird intermediary place where i didn't know what i was doing and i don't make friends easily and and i was just uh and so i got into this uh fashion program i had originally studied fine arts and i was like there's no money in that and i'm not going to teach like maybe maybe you know fashion right and uh, i can that seems more realistic in terms of pro- of a professional trajectory and so i got into this uh this art school this design school right down downtown Chicago and um, I'm just sort of floundering that first quarter and um, you know long-term repeatable behavior man I found those people and um, started partying I was never a drinker I always thought of myself as a drug guy you know I had drank before but I was like this just does it doesn't get me high you know and and I'm not a good drunk you know I right I wasn't good at it and I mean four years at Auburn doing drugs I probably drank less than ten 10 times you know it just was not my cup of tea it was like whatever you do you I never liked beer just liquor was so intense so I just never saw my guy uh, saw myself as a drinker and so we're hanging out in Chicago right it's the Midwest it's Chicago right you talk about a drinking town and um, I met this guy named Michael and he was a country boy from Indiana and me being a knucklehead from Alabama um, there wasn't a lot of um, you know cisgender guys in in this program it was a lot of gay gentlemen a lot of women right and so these two weird country boys and so we you know we were smoking a cigarette on, on State Street kind of talking and we struck up a friendship and he was really good-looking super socially skillful just like one of those he was he was a badass He was just an awesome guy and um, and and I became his wingman and I loved it you know like he was my proxy to the social world and so we started hanging out started partying and started drinking and it still didn't really resonate with me it didn't hit me You know, it wasn't a spiritual experience. And, um... You know, it was weird. Uh, we, were, we were drinking at you know, different parties and getting into school. We both love fashion. We both love art and, and we were both into it. We're hanging out at Michael's house. It was like a Wednesday night and we're like playing Tiger Woods golf. Right. I'm not a big video game guy, but we we're just sitting there. And I developed a taste for Red Bull and Jaeger. Right. And if you're, you're you know, you're a druggie, you know, that's kind of a druggie drink. Right. <laughs> This is a weird drink, Jägermeister. Um, oh God, right, makes my stomach turn talking about it. But uh, yeah, so basically i I just mix the two and make a huge Jager bomb, right? And so that was my druggy drink. And so we're sitting there and we're just chilling. Like it's, it's low key, there's no one else over there. It's just me and Michael, we're playing video games, but it was, it was, uh, you know, that night I was I was focused on the drink because usually there was all these distractions and there were where it was parties and people and shenanigans. And we were, you know, taking shots of this and drinking that. But it was just me and the drink and Michael was doing his own thing. It was very passive, very quiet. And so I was paying attention to the booze. And so I'm getting drunk that night and I'm attuned to it. I'm like, you know, really feeling it. I'm really hearing it. And, um, you know, alcohol releases a lot of neuro transmitters in your brain. It's hard to study an alcohol brain. If we look at it metabolically, it's all over the place. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, it releases endorphins, you know, that's why the medication, Naltrexone, opioid antagonist, um, helps in the treatment of alcohol use disorder. It mitigates the reinforcing effects of the alcohol. If you drink on it, it mitigates the craving response. But yeah, a lot of people don't know that alcohol releases endorphins along with, uh, the serotonin and the GABA And, um, So I'm sitting there and I don't just get drunk, like I get high, you know? Like I had that spiritual experience, like I'd had with the amphetamines, like I'd had with the Oxycontin, and I was like, oh, you know? And I had a liking experience. It was interesting. I was looking at the neuroscience of wanting versus liking experience. You ever want a bunch of stuff you don't even like? <laughs> right? I did the math and then the hardware in your brain to, to want something is about 300 cubic centimeters, but it's only about one cubic centimeter to like something. Right? And so your reward center, the part of the brain that gets haywire and addiction, it's called your nucleus accumbens, right? Uh, we all have a impulsive teenager in us I want to feel good and I want to feel good now right you know that feeling yeah that's your nucleus accumbens all right and uh, that's the part of the brain that gets dysregulated in addiction large surges of dopamine and in that part of the brain um, only about 10% of your reward center can mediate this liking experience so it's very easy to want something right and so many of us addiction aside you know get outside of ourselves we we, we detach from how we we feel in our internal experience through striving, through achieving, through consumerism, through all of these different things, just busy in ourselves. And uh, I guess if you're not using heroin and drinking yourself to death, you know, it's easy to make the case that's okay. Um, But my point is, is I I think, you know, it's hard to kind of regulate this liking experience, which isn't just dopamine, but it's endocannabinoids, It's endorphins. And and maybe, you know, endocannabinoids from uh, marijuana use, right? But endocannabinoids. Uh, are uh, you know are around uh, regulation of an overall sense of well-being right and if you've ever smoked a little pot you might have had that fleeting experience where you're like I'm all good right <laughs> the problem is you're smoking blunts in your mama's basement at 30 years old and you're like this is okay right) <laughs> So obviously, too much of a good thing can come back to bite you in the bud and keep you from 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 living, from pursuing your higher self, from pursuing your goals. Um, anyways, you know, back to drinking, I had that liking experience, and I think this is what hooks us in any form of addiction: that initial, that initial aha spiritual experience you activate those little bits of your brain that can mediate liking experience and that profound novelty of the intoxication novelty is awesome and better than anticipated right you ever been got your hopes up and then it's better than anticipated that is dopamine waterfall you know what I mean and I think when that happens uh, you know and, and you use a substance and you're as profoundly insecure and uncomfortable with yourself as I was you know you're like oh my god this is it like I feel comfortable like the pain of being me is is gone right and then that potentiates the release of dopamine so of course you're gonna be more likely to seek that out. That's how addiction starts, right? That's how we plant the seeds of our addictive garden, right? And then we water it by getting high every day and then all of a sudden it blooms into a rational compulsive behavior and we're gone, right? (laughs) And then we're chasing that dragon. It's kind of a, you know, played out trope. You're chasing the dragon, man, you know, but it's kind of true. We're kind of chasing that initial aha spiritual experience and, um, the irony is that the brain, uh, so pleasure and, and pain are processed in the same part of the brain. Um, and so you get high, the seesaw goes up, right? That's what chemicals do. Most chemicals have been refined and potentiated in just the last 200 years, right? We've been drinking funny juice, fermented juice for thousands of years. We've been using pot for thousands of years and opium for medicine. Um, but really since you know the, the last 200 years, the refining of cocaine, the refining of of morphine and then heroin and then all of these synthetic compounds. Now everybody's dying off of fentanyl and P2P methamphetamine. Um, like these substances are up to eleven hundred percent stronger than your best day ever in naturally occurring dopamine land. Holy smokes, like eleven times stronger than anything else. And so this is a really recent, uh, you know, uh, uh, development in our history as modern human beings. The modern Human brain anatomically goes back about two hundred thousand years, right? And humbly, you know, scientists don't think a whole lot has changed in that time. But these substances have a have an affinity for survival mechanisms in your brain. It's all midbrain, and that part of the brain's two hundred million years old, and it's four to five hundred percent stronger than the part of the brain that's tasked with regulating it. Right? Anybody ever lose their temper? Right? And you're like, why did I do that? Why did I say that? You know? Um, and logically you can see what's happening but your powerful emotions railroad you and run the show right or uh, I gave up ice cream right Ben and Jerry's you know oh man you get a court right and you're like this is three servings right here and I'm gonna be responsible right and then you cash it out and you feel sick to your stomach and you're like what happened tonight right Because ice cream has an affinity for your midbrain, and uh, you know, it's up to 500% stronger than the part of the brain that regulates it. So, I had that spiritual experience with alcohol, and after that, I turned my will and my life over to it. You know, addiction's a weird testament to faith. You know, um, faith means to have trust in a person or a thing, right? Um, the second definition in Webster's, I'm not a big fan of the blind faith. You know, I want something I can get my hands on like a person, you know, like a relationship or in this case, a substance, you know, <laughs> I was like, yeah, you know, you got to give it to chemicals. They're accessible. They're easy. They're fast acting and they're up to 1100% stronger than anything else. So I put my trust, my faith in that substance, you know, vodka be thy name and, um, you know so I sought that out man I drank every day for the next three years and um if you think fashion school is hard like learning how to sew and drape and you know do a uh, pattern construction and then you know put it all you, basically you're like a you're like a clothing engineer like that's really really hard like just straight up that's objectively hard um doing it every day while you're drunk you know just makes it like infinitely more difficult um but I don't know that's just what I did right I, I just got high and I made things uh, way harder than they had to be and um, so within a year uh, you know I switched over to vodka right Jaegers and Red Bulls pretty expensive and uh, so I switched over to cheap vodka and um, and then you know it quit working I was getting drunk but there's a difference between intoxication and inebriation the intoxication is that you, know, you take a couple of shots and you get that big rush right you take a couple of smokes a couple of lines that initial rush is is what gets us, and then you keep seeking that out, but you can't. The brain immediately protects against that because when the seesaw goes up in terms of intoxication, your brain immediately immediately downregulates other dopamine receptors to rectify and rebalance the the seesaw. So if you're me, you just get high every day in increasing amounts, right? <laughs> but eventually, um, you know, out of eighty six billion neurons in the nervous system, only four hundred thousand. Can signal for dopamine, and and it's possible, I believe, to downregulate almost all of those. And so, no matter how much I drink, no matter how much I used, I couldn't get high. I couldn't get intoxicated. And so, I was just an an angry, you know, mentally ill, inebriated person, you know. Um, and so, you know, I just added more substances, and so it, it was crazy, man. Um, just the the massive cocaine use, and 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 the benzos, which I don't even like, right? But I'll I'll do a bunch of things. I don't, I don't like, right? Uh, some part of my brain was convinced I wanted them, uh, and and the severe pot use and smoking cigs and 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 then you know I'm getting some pot from my guy and I got a bag of hair, uh, bag of cocaine in my pocket, so I meet up with my guy Pete and um, this is the northwest side of Chicago and he's like I don't have any pot and I'm like well why am I in this you know at this gas station in your car right what are we doing here, and he's like well I I, I don't have any pot but I I, I got some some heroin and I was like oh man I had a had a girlfriend in the car and we were about to drink and do some cocaine I'm like that's a little you know that's a little serious right speedballs right like I, you know so the first thought was how do I convince this person to do speedballs and make it okay right and then I think I had a real quick fleeting thought that um, you know I hadn't boded very well with my OxyContin use you know that uh, heroins one molecule different than oxycodone so it's basically pharmaceutical grade uh, heroin I was like I don't know if I'm going to be a successful, you know, uh, moderate heroin user, you know? <laughs> I don't know if that's in the cards for me, right? But I think I was more concerned. To the the My nucleus that comes is like, how am I going to make this right with my lady friend? And um, I didn't have to, right? Like, speed balls kind of sell themselves, yeah. And um, she could take it or leave it. Uh, amazingly, statistically, most people that misuse chemicals, millions of people in this country use chemicals, right? And it's weird because my experience has been horrible, life- threatening addiction but even when it comes to cocaine and methamphetamine and adderall and and cocaine all these powerful mood altering agents most people that misuse them are either able to moderate or they stop altogether on their own you know and that's not encouraging you to go out and and get willy-nilly with it all right these are extremely potent and refined chemicals and um, we're a little unhinged these days in terms of uh, you know our dopaminergic uh, you know cultural zeitgeist Um, but I wasn't one of those people and she could take it or leave it and I couldn't and uh, so that just started a heroin addiction so I'm drinking a liter of vodka I'm doing heroin and I'm you know so fast forward I, I graduate from school somehow you know um, I think it was the structure and, and my family my mom was there and she was cooking basically she was holding down the fort and I get high every day I do my schoolwork, and I was just able to do that much you know I graduated and she's Gone right. She's moving out East Coast to give my uh, to give my sister, my little sister, a place to live. She was getting into grad school in uh, in DC, and then I was out on my own. And and, and the structure, my friends, they were gone, and uh, I just went to the bitter end, man. Um, I was on this weird. I, I think the best metaphor I have, you know, kind of going to the bitter end in my in stage alcoholism. I was like on this. I was on this demonic alcoholic roller coaster, you know. And there's an element of fun to it, right? It's a roller coaster. You're like. Yeah, right. Because you're intoxicated every day, so you got that that surge through you. But the reality was was that like, this was a de- demonic, horrible roller coaster. And when I wanted to get off, I couldn't. You know, it just kept going, one ride after another. And uh, so I just sort of knew that I was going, and my body was given out. And I quit eating, and reverse tolerance set in. And you have this phenomenon, advanced alcoholism, uh, where basically the alcohol becomes toxic. And, and smaller amounts will get you really, really intoxicated, right? And uh, But not in a good way, right? <laughs> like in a way that it's killing you. And uh, so that's what happened. And I put myself in the hospital at Northwestern. And uh, um, I went in there. I'm like, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a heroin addict. I'm trying to kill myself. And they're like, come on in, right? And I uh, put myself on a hold. And uh, it wasn't enough, man. I was reading the medical records. I'm uh, writing a book right now. And I was kind... Kind of at that point in my story and writing, it and I had ordered the medical records. so I usually expunge them after six or seven years. And, uh, and I'm reading it. It's kind of an interesting melodrama, right? Trying to escape and pink elephants and tremors and you know all that stuff. I don't remember because I was on enough van to take out the front line of the Vikings. And um,
0: <laughs>
1: you know, as soon as it settled and they detoxed me to a certain extent, and I remember getting a meal in me, and then the roller coaster was like, come on. and and I left, and the doctors were like, dude, there was no scientific reason you should have been alive when you got here. Like, you should have died, right? Like, my blood alcohol content was was such it should have poisoned me. Like, I should have died from blood poisoning. And they were like, it was a miracle of medical science that you were alive when you got here. If you leave here, you'll be dead in a week. And they said, and uh, if for some miracle you don't drink, but you go back to drinking, you probably won't last longer than a month. And Um, I didn't care you know I I just I left I drank and and I went at it and um You know, uh, I ended up at a meeting. I saw my personal doctor a couple of days before I got sober. And it was like, you know, one of those half honesty deals. Uh, I lied by omission. I didn't mention anything about the heroin use, but I was like, I'm an alcoholic and I'm withdrawing. And I really just wanted to play him for some benzos, you know, and uh, boo hoo hoo. But I was, you know, kind of honest. But, you know, it's just in my experience. The best way to to lie is to tell a half truth so you can look him in the eye. Right. But it was all discernment my own addiction. And on the way out of my, and this doctor was awesome. He was like a doctor non-feel good. He was this homeopathic, like beautiful man. He was a really, really great doctor, put up with a lot of shenanigans on my part. I had lied to him a number of times and he loved me nonetheless. And on the way out, he gave me this flyer, this handout for an AA meeting. And uh, so two days later, uh, I'm cut off from my mother. I'm like, I have no money. I've pawned everything like, and I'm still alive. (laughs) And I was like, I don't know what I'm. What am I gonna do? And uh, and so I had. I would always leave just this much in the bottle, so I could you know have something to drink first thing when I woke up. And so I had that. I took some Librium. Um, that's just generic Valium. What they give you for withdrawal, right? But it's 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 kind of like alcohol in a pill. I took a. I took a Librium, and then I ended up at this meeting uh, Friday night. Uh, this was May 30th, 2008, and I ended up at this meeting, and uh, and I got there, took the bus down to Milwaukee, took north over in this place called the Mustard Seed, all right? Now, this was not glam, yeah, the Mustard Seed, right? And this was like a really grimy kind of AA club, all right? Like, this was not, you know, upper middle class suburbs AA, right? Where somebody's got a beamer. This was like crack smoking AA, right? It was it was yeah so I walk up into this meeting and I sit in the back and I swear to God everything was like so gray you know like when you get up in the morning sometimes it's foggy you know it was like that sitting down in that meeting I don't know where the I think I was just dying right everything was foggy and gray and heavy and I was just like gone I was empty I was completely broken and uh, so the meeting started and this older brother named Michael he was a a child psychologist he was um, a gay gentleman and so he just told his story and so I'm sitting there and I'm listening to this guy's story and his story was just beyond you know crazy like I couldn't personally relate to a lot of the shenanigans that he got into but the authenticity and the sincerity and just like the grime I mean so he ended up uh, you know he killed somebody Uh, you know he's drunk and intoxicated he got into a car accident and killed somebody It's involuntary manslaughter he got off in court on a technicality right who gets away with that right and so he was like a PhD doctor he's a psychologist right and he'd treat children right but he would do lines of cocaine and do shots before treating your child oh. <laughs> And he would hang out with prostitutes. He had a lot of lady friends that were prostitutes. He starts hanging out with them, and he started prostituting himself for fun, you know. And so it's just like a really dark and and just sad and addicted story, right? And so I couldn't I couldn't relate to those things personally. But I could relate to the grime and the nastiness and and just the the you know the spiritual desperation, the emptiness of his story. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'd been to a couple meetings before, but this one resonated with me in a way that that none really had because of its authenticity. You know, I was just like, wow, that, that talk about radical honesty, right? So it hit me. Um, I wasn't inspired. <laughs> I didn't see the light, right? Like God was not there with me. But um, Michael connected with me um, by. way of the courage of sharing and testifying to his story and his brother had now like 20 years of sobriety right he, he's a good doctor now you know and um so I walk outside and I light up a cigarette and I swear to God, like the the, the whole earth was like spinning. Like when you're really drunk, you know? And it was just like, everything was spinning. And this brother came up to me, I was about 26. And uh, he said, how are you doing? And I was like, <laughs> that was the most audacious, like ridiculous question anybody could ever ask me, right? Like I was speechless. And uh, so I think he read all of that on my face and he's like, how long do you have sober? And so I looked at the watch I didn't have And I was like, I don't know, dude. Right, cynical and and anger. I was like, three hours, you know? And even that was questionable. And he said, cool, you know? And he was like really nonchalant, uh, you know? uh, Just a lot of space, a lot of love. He was really unassuming. He wasn't trying to sell anything. He was just like... He was just endlessly tolerant and unconditionally positive in his regard for me right I mean I'm sure that I was emitting, you know like like just ray beams of negativity and despair and death like I was dying you know like I was spiritually gone and this guy just stood there and absorbed it well. Yeah, and, and so he shared a little bit about himself. He had 18 months clean off of booze, off of cocaine, said he'd been going to young people's AA meetings, uh, been trying to work the steps, been trying to enlarge in his spir- spiritual life. And then um, he said, what are you doing tomorrow? I was like, besides killing myself? Yeah. So <laughs> I love AA, like the dark humor. I swear to God, without even skipping a beat, he was like, yeah, 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 besides killing yourself, what are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> I was yeah. like, I don't know. He's like, well, why don't you come back here, like at noon, and we'll hang out. I was like, really? He's like, yeah. So I got on the bus. I went home. I took a Librium. You know, I passed out. And, um, you know, the next day, it was May 31st, 2008. I haven't found it necessary to destroy myself with drugs and alcohol since that day. You know, I, I, I got up, you know. You know and, hearing about your spiritual birthday today you know um, it's a it's an important thing right it's, it's time to wake up yeah you know? and but I wasn't capable of doing that on my own I was not I didn't have the faculty to all right? I didn't have the faculty to sit still and listen and be present um, my whole nervous system was oriented towards destruction towards a rational compulsive use of whatever right and um, you know, so I, I woke up and the cravings were murderous, right? I had no money, so I was really thinking about going and hawking a bottle. And um, so I got on the bus early, went down there, and I just remember it being really hot and gross. I mean, summer was probably just emerging. It was probably just my dysregulated brain. And so I sat there just like, uh, <laughs> just waiting for Lee to get there. <laughs> and he got there, and I thought we were gonna go to a meeting. And um, he was like, "No, nah, we're just we're just gonna hang out." He was like, had a service commitment, you know, watching the door. And uh, so we sat there, and I was like, "What are we doing?" He's like, "You know how to play chess?" Mm-hmm. Now, you know, being a smart addict, and you know, I was like, "I know how to play chess." You know? and so he sets up the board, and um, you know, we go at it. He beats me in six moves. Wow. <laughs> And so I kind of zoomed out and had a meta moment. Like, seriously, everything slowed down and it was humbling in and in a really good way. I was like, this is where we're at, Joe. Right. Like, this is your cognitive decline. Like, you are you're, you're incompetent. Like, you aren't functioning at all. Like, you were maybe able to get that degree and and on the surface, you know, maybe I was a, a big fish in a small pond in art school and and maybe I was able to look good on the surface. But who cares? Right. That's superficiality. What's, what matters is what's going on in your heart. What matters is what's going on in your stomach. And, and there wasn't anything good going on there. And so it was like, you know, kind of like forced me to look in the mirror. Not that I had the courage to look in an actual mirror. But it was really reflective that moment. I was like... Damn, dude like you've really fallen and um, so of course I wasn't planning for the future I'd taken one Librium right and I had reignited the physical dependence to alcohol when, you, when you're in advanced alcoholism you can get detoxed but the tissue damage is progressive and so if you start up again in this case for two weeks you're right back where you started and you'll precipitate a horrible life-threatening withdrawal syndrome right you can die from alcohol withdrawal you can die from benzodiazepine withdrawal and benzos are the are the medication that you use to uh to alleviate the withdrawal so i'd taken one of the medication to uh, address my withdrawal so that afternoon he's like well hey why don't we go downtown and we'll go to this young people's meeting and i'm like all right i don't know what that is or what you're talking about so we go down there and uh off of dearborn we walk up dearborn and there's this little facility called hazelden right and there's this little uh, meeting place uh this little meeting hall right outside the facility I mean it was tiny you know probably about as big as uh, smaller than this living room right and there was and so we get down there and I'm shaking right I'm in withdrawal and I'm doing bad and so I had to sit on my hands and the room fills up with like 40 young people and these people had rainbows and energy like popping out their ears I mean they were so alive I mean the juxtaposition relative to my decrepit you know dying out alcoholic state was just ridiculous and um, I'd never been in a meeting you know in a, I'd never been in a 12 step meeting where there was that much you know if you, you know, like, if, I'd never seen anything that attractive before in a sober community right it always been a chore it always been like this horrible social and anxiety inducing thing for me and I've been to some meetings I'm sure it wasn't the fault of the meetings it was my attitude it was my fear it was my my close mindedness and maybe they weren't that great of meetings but this was in my face and it was radiating love and attractive like attractiveness like it was a really attractive deal and um you know i listened and i'm crying i'm just like a mess and um you know i got a sponsor that night you know and uh and so I went to a meeting every day for the next couple of years. I didn't have much going on, you know? <laughs> And uh, so they employed me, you know? And, and then I did that job, and then I got another job. And I just, you know, community, that's where spirituality began for me, um, you know? And so they suggested that the world was a loving and guiding place. They didn't tell me that, right? But that was kind of the proposition. They said, you know, we've turned our will in our lives over to these chemicals. They failed us. You know, my, uh, my first sponsor's name was John Kay. And John was like, all right, what were the last substances you were using? I said, alcohol and heroin. And he said, what did they do for you? Mm-hmm. And I said, everything. <laughs> and he's like, and he's like, well, you're going to need a sufficient substitute. And then it hit me, right? It was like a spiritual punch to the face. I was like, oh my gosh, I am so screwed you know like that was like before I'd wake up in the morning and before I'd even use the restroom I would put chemicals in my substance I called getting it my you know getting my head right like I literally couldn't function without some kind of substance in my person and like that that, that was my power and so I was like alright man that is that is that is daunting that is overwhelming the prospect but I knew that he was right you know I didn't think, uh, so I tried to kill myself. You know, I ended up hospitalized. So when I got sober, um, uh, it wasn't so much. I mean, the cravings were awful. You know, my body, my nervous system, 10 years of daily use was extremely sensitized and it needed to use. But what really got me in those first couple of weeks was um, the suicidality. You know, Um, I wanted to die. I wanted to die so. So bad, right? And not because, you know, I just wanted to not exist. That's kind of a terrifying prospect. You know, if we zoom out, it's kind of a scary thing, right? Just uh, the mystery of everything. It was just, I, I I was absolutely convinced there was no solution to my predicament. And thus, killing myself made complete sense, you know? Um, it's a weird thing, right? Like where suicide starts making sense. It shouldn't make sense, right? It's like, no, that's, that's very dark and... And horrible and and uh, but if you get sick enough and, and you live in perpetual pain for long enough I think the psyche gets manipulated it gets twisted up and it's like well your drive is towards balance but pain is your reality for so long I think the nervous system's like you know what if you didn't exist that would be a really kind of a hack to reorient homeostasis right and I think that's what happens in severe depression and all these other illnesses. is is that, you know, like this horrible, this horrible thing, suicide. I've lost a number of friends to suicide. Um, You know, it starts to make sense. And so it made absolute sense to me. And, you know, my sponsor was like, is it possible, you know, maybe at some point in the future, you might feel less shitty than you do now. (laughs) And I was like, well, I'd have to be like completely ridiculous to say no, right? Like, who am I to say that there's no possibility of me, you know, potentially feeling less bad than I do now, right? <laughs> and so, hope, you know, isn't just a touchy-feely thing; like it's it's actually a life-saving principle, right? It's it's a it's it's a necessity, and um, you know, he said, well. um so we made a deal, right? Uh, so I was still burdened with this horrible suicidality. And I said, I don't think this is going to work for me. I can't deny that all of y'all have been dramatically transformed because I heard their stories and they were sick. Some of them were sicker than me. And and these people were literally transformed in body, mind and spirit. They were free. I mean, their lives were hard, but they were suffering with grace and, and it looked really attractive. And I was like, yeah, but I told my sponsor, I was like, I'm the sickest dude on the planet planet. He was like, you're the sickest dude out of seven billion people. (laughs) Right. So it takes a certain kind of ego to be the best dude out of seven billion people. Right. I think he so he gently very gently, you know, reflected back to me. I think that's two sides of a similar coin being the sickest dude. But he said, all right, maybe you are, you know. (laughs) And so I said, well, how about this? I'm I'm just resigned to kill myself. So I'll make you a deal. Um, The way that I was raised, I got a weird, you know, dogmatic thing about suicide so um, um, I'm going to work this program I'm going to do it honestly to the best of my abilities I'm going to show you that I'm beyond the helping hand of this program of the universe and then in good conscience I can take myself out because I've tried everything will you work with me on those terms and it was kind of abrupt and like unsettling he was like absolutely right (laughs) I was like that's dark you know (laughs) But I said the magic words like I would do it honestly and to the best of my abilities, right? When it comes to spirituality, I think you can't really do it wrong. If, you, if you're if you honest and authentic and you exert the best of your abilities, like the universe is going to meet you halfway, right? Um, but I didn't know that. I didn't know anything. Um, I knew less than nothing. And um, so, I man, that, that, that man saved my life. Um, he had his own problems. He was kind of a hard ass and he was mean to me, but, um, you know, like I had, I had so many layers and uh, of just like angst and fear and pain. Like he had to be sharp, you know, he had to be and extremely direct with me to cut through all of it and so you know my tail would be between my legs and i'd feel all shameful and all small in front of all these people and i'd go home and i'd think about what he said and i knew that they were right you know um, and because they were less concerned with being right than what was right in the largest sense right they were now concerned with spiritual truths you know? and so here was the intersection right so philosophically there's truth and then there's opinion right we all got opinions right we're all entitled to opinions. I can safely assume mine is more important to me than it is to you, right? But opinions are temporary, they're ephemeral, they're fleeting. Um, Truth on the other hand, by definition is eternal. A million years ago, two plus two is four. A million years from now, two plus two will be four. And so I was told that the steps are spiritual principles, they're truths from which others are derived. So instead of facing the ups and downs of my life with the best of my opinions, I would try and bring in these steps like honesty and hope and faith and courage and humility and perseverance, willingness, service, love, sisterhood, brotherhood, right? Those are the steps. They're truths from which others are derived. And um, you know so and this man was a model of living a principled life you know um and so i went to these meetings and uh in, in chicago almost all the meetings were open and in, in, in their style so no topics it was just always open and so some brothers some sisters some person would just start off the meeting and they'd be talking about their pain their suffering their insecurities their difficulties their cravings to use and then they would talk about how they were using principles to set themselves free and that was very helpful i'm an experiential learner right like a monkey see monkey do that's how i best learn and so i just bore witness to these people living spiritually principled lives and um and sometimes it was really ugly and desperate but they didn't find find it necessary to get drunk or high and for people like me (laughs) that's a revolution you know (laughs) And so monkey see, monkey do, man. They say, fake it till you make it. And so that's what I did. Um, I tried to be uh, like the cool kids. And the cool kids for me, they had worked the steps uh, and they were of maximum service to other people still suffering, right? They were like all bodhisattvas, right? A bodhisattva is someone that is dedicated to alleviating the suffering in others, right? So A is just really a bunch of bodhisattvas, whether they know it or not. And so I tried uh, to be like them and I still wasn't convinced it was gonna work for me, right? Um, But, you know, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he said faith is, uh, you know, climbing up the staircase, um, but you can't see the first step, right? And so there's a staircase. You probably know that it's there, but it's really dark and you don't know if that first one's gonna catch you, right, like that's, that's faith. And so I climbed up that staircase and I didn't have the faculty to do it. I didn't believe in anything. I was a complete nihilist. I was completely lost in self. And I failed me, obviously. Um, So I put my faith in the fruit of their experience because I couldn't deny that. That was measurable, that was observable. These people had years of sobriety, so it was obviously repeatable, right? Um, And so I put my faith in the fruit of their experience, and I went out on a limb that maybe the universe is loving and guiding, right? My sponsor said, uh, you know, Joe, do the very best of your abilities. Like, you know, based in these principles, be honest, do the best that you can, and then God will meet you halfway. All right, like it's not a transactional deal where you go to a restaurant, you sit down and you're like, God, God, can I get some service over here? <laughs> like it, we've tried that it doesn't doesn't work right like it's a relationship and relationships require personal investment like good relationships are reciprocal right they're mutually giving and so I had to give of myself in good faith and see if the universe would reciprocate you know and I think that's how we go from the nihilist right number one to number two you know, maybe the world is loving and guiding but I'm not flirting with it let alone trying it but how do we get to three you know is by doing the work right we do the next right thing Uh, we get out our own ways we try to inject principles into all our affairs And then, uh, like my first sponsor said, he said, don't hesitate to look for God in the outcome, right? Like, do the good works and then try to sync yourself up. It's called synchronicity uh, in the scientific realm, right? Where you have those beautiful moments of serendipity, where of connectedness, where you're like, there's no way that's a coincidence, right? It's like, I think the the universe is actually acting in in my weird favor these days, right? And the fruit of your hard work and, and the fear and the uncertainty. Certainty, but you stick through it and then the universe aligns with you that's synchronicity right and uh, research shows more the more you look for synchronicity in your lives the more you experience it and that kind of makes sense right the more I try to have a relationship with the universe the more inclined it is to have a relationship with me what a novel idea right that's a loving universe and um I was like you bet your ass I'm looking for God in the outcome <laughs> so there's not gonna be anything there right <laughs> and um And there was something there, right? And what it was, was like, it was stillness, right? It was peace. Um, After I graduated from fashion school, um... I had a thing with methadone, long stupid story. I got off of methadone and it's a nightmare getting off of methadone, y'all. All All right, so I'm like still kind of like shaken from methadone withdrawal and I'm drinking every day. And I was like, I wanna wanna graduate from college, you know, tattoo, right? And so I got happiness I seek tattooed down my arm, drunk off my ass, it was so painful. And, and it's funny, you know, because happiness is a fleeting experience, right? All emotions, all feelings are ephemeral, right? But, ah, oh man, I'd, I'd, I'd give you a mountain of positive emotions for stillness, you know, for peace. <laughs> Because right? if peace is my foundation, life's going to have its ups and downs, man, right? I'm steering the boat in the oceans, you know, sometimes it's, sometimes it's crazy and stormy and other times it's really quiescent. But if I'm still, if stillness is my foundation, I, I will do anything to maintain the stillness and the peace that I know in my person today. So... Yeah, a good testament to fleeting experience, whether it's intoxication, the approval of others, achievement. You know, it's also fleeting. <laughs> So that was my first experience with God, you know, was was aligning myself with principles, trying to get out of myself and be useful to other people. You know, research shows that it actually releases more dopamine to be of service to someone than someone's of service to you, all right? So, and I know we're all, I don't know, we have a pretty lazy, sedentary culture these days. So kind of the good life, you know, and I've asked, I I work, so I'm a therapist, an addiction therapist, and, um, I work with about a thousand different people every year and I've been doing this for eight years. So I've worked with thousands of people at this point. And I like to do informal surveys, you know, just to, to get the feedback of other people and, and kind of take the temperature of where we at. And I like to ask people like, what's the good life? You know, like what is the good life? Kind of getting Aristotle on them. And um, and a lot of times, I remember this kid, he's uh, got an opioid use disorder and he was like, the good life? I'm going to be down in Florida and someone's going to be giving my Suboxone on a silver platter you know So suboxone's a medication i'm like so you know just kind of passively being there being tended to and you know, i don't know It sounds pretty boring <laughs> you know if everything was perfect there'd be no reason to practice you know seriously right, right that was one of the hardest things um you know having a taking a leap of faith in god was like why is there so much pain and suffering in the world you know, that's a difficult thing to reconcile philosophically, you know, at least it was for me in terms of really orienting myself, giving a chance to the idea that the universe is loving and guiding. It's like there's so much pain and suffering and 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 I've been tortured by mental illness and and a bunch of stuff I didn't know that I didn't know. And God, it hurts worse when you don't know. And, and then 10 years of addiction and I looked around and just all the violence and the despair, the deaths of despair, the overdoses, the suicides are higher than ever in our country. And I'm like, how do you reconcile that with a loving God, right? And so it's kind of a thought exercise. I mean, imagine a plane of existence where, you know, no pain, no suffering, no adversity is, is possible. Mm-hmm. All right we're just sitting around getting served on a silver platter day in and day out, right so there's no opportunity for growth. Nothing holds any meaning if nothing is hard, right? Things mean something to you because it hurts, and you work for them, right. <laughs> So you can't have it both ways. You can't have a life that is intrinsically meaningful without there being pain and suffering. So maybe, maybe this loving God, maybe this intelligent, intelligent designer, you know, maybe this creator, you know, just created a plane of existence in which pain and suffering is possible, so that we might strive and transcend it. You know? <laughs> You know, and, and, and so I took a moral inventory and in most traditions, you know, religious, theological, and a 12-step tradition, you take inventory, right? My head was firmly up my rear end. I needed to pull it out and, you know, kind of take a look at things to ensure I wouldn't go back and put my head up there because that was my pattern. <laughs> And, you know, pain and suffering in the world, when I took a thorough inventory of myself, I was responsible for over 99% of the pain and suffering in my life, right? You're not out to get me, right? I'm not that important, right? Um, Yeah, some people had wronged me, right? But they're human and they're fallible and they're unskillful. And I am, in my own world, the most fallible and the most unskillful, right? Right. Like I'm human. So, of course, humans are clumsy and we hurt one another because we're driven by fear and uncertainty. And in the psychological literature, we love the illusions of control and predictability. Right. That's why uh, you're going down 94 and then you turn the corner. You're like, oh, I got to get there. I got to get there. And then there's a backed up, Right. There's a there's an accident. And you're like, no, I got somewhere to be. And right. You've lost all controllability. You've lost all predictability and the buddha's right like the only thing that changes is is everything right the law of change everything changes and uh so uh i know in my case i've gone to enormous lengths to hold on to temporary phenomena right well if i just feel like this all the time i'll be fine right or if you know the weather is just great like this right now like this moment I can deal with life, you know? And uh, you know, whether it's the weather, how I feel, my relationship to you, it's all gonna change, right? So maybe I need to learn and reorient myself with the fact that everything changes and life is hard and it's terrifying. And even though I'm centered and I'm peaceful and I'm extremely confident in my relationship with the universe, I'm absolutely convey- convinced based on the fruit of my experience, that it is loving, that it is guiding. It's still terrifying. I don't know right like I don't know nobody's come back to to enlighten us and give us any sense of certainty but then again the meaning would be you know ripped from us if we had absolute certainty of what it was all about you know like why get out of bed all right, so I think the universe is always going to be inherently painful. Um, our bodies are going to waste away. It's going to. It's going to suck. I'm going to go out. My parents are going to die. I love them. You know, everything that I know and I cherish is going to come to pass. Um, but without all of that, nothing would have any meaning, and nothing would be truly beautiful. All right. And so I figured that out, you know, um, I I was able to reconcile that this life is enormously painful and there's a lot of unskillfulness and, and we, man, our species, man, (laughs) We, 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 just a lot of friction and, um, that's okay. Like there's, there's a loving guiding force in the universe nonetheless. So, you know, Uh, I've been fortunate enough to uh, you know to to go back to school and do it sober you know and um you know, uh, I didn't know what to do with myself and, and uh, made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. Step three, um, like what I want to do with my life. <laughs> I didn't want to give that one up for a couple of years, even sober. And I got into a place of pain and uncertainty and I found myself on my knees. I'm not real big praying on my knees. Um, I'm just concerned with sincerity, but I was on my knees and I was like, I don't know what to do with myself. And um, you know, two weeks later, a little serendipity, a little synchronicity, and I got a good suggestion. And I got associated with this facility, and that facility led to grad school, and grad school led to uh, a job here in Minnesota. I was living out in sunny Colorado for coming out here. I was like, "This is the place, right?" And uh, here we are, you know, um, nine years later. Uh, Minnesota, And uh, it's been infinitely good for me. Like the universe, um, you know, wanted me out here. And and if I've learned anything, right, it's to sometimes just step back and give some time and space for the universe to work. You know, <laughs> I still got to do my piece and, and meet it halfway. And, and that's how I've ended up here in a job in which I have. Um, I, I work for the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation and, uh, and I'm privileged to do so. So we do really, really good work and I love this organization. They're just absolutely dedicated to being better at what they do. Right. And they've been around for a long time, super easy to rest on their laurels and we're the best and no, 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 no. But no, they're absolutely dedicated and relentless relentless in their pursuit of being better. And I'm all about that. Right. Like I got to continually keep growing professionally and spiritually and personally. So it's just such a beautiful thing to be with an organization that has principles, that have values that align with mine. And I know for so many people in healthcare, And I mean, I don't know how you work in the banking industry and manage your values. But, uh, you know, um, I'm, I know for me, uh, you know, I'm really, really grateful to, to be somewhere professionally and, and personally that aligns with my values. And I would have never gotten there had I not been willing to get out of my own way and trust that the universe is loving and guiding. And so, um, you know, I'm I, you know, my my orientation, my background is art. You know, like not science. Right? I can't tell you what lengths I went to. I went to great lengths to avoid any science during all of those years of college because that was not my forte. And uh, around 2015, 16, they were like, "Joe, we want you to do the disease of addiction lecture. We want you to teach the biology of of the of the disease to uh, you know the population." I was working up in Center City at the Mothership, and just hundreds of people. And uh, I said, "Okay." And I had uh, in grad school. School, um had been revelatory for me in terms of understanding the the modern mechanics of addiction and i'd gotten somewhat skillful at being able to uh relay that to to the clients and so i developed these lectures and and uh got pretty skillful at it and then one time we had a, um this was like around 2018 we had this uh neuroscientist his name's uh, uh he runs the medical discovery team over at uh uh over at uh, the university of minnesota and uh dr Mark Thomas and so uh, he was hanging out kind of looking at the organization and he was up in Center City and they're like oh we'll have him hang out with Joe you know they'll, they'll kick it off and we did and the scientist is just awesome he was sitting in my office and he asked me one of the deepest questions he was like alright so I'm in there at the cellular level trying to figure out addiction and you're in the trenches with your clients you know trying to fight the disease what can we do at the cellular level that might translate into better outcomes?" for you and I was like oh that's a really good question all right (laughs) and um And I got to call him because I've I've been thinking about that for the last four or five years. And um, anyways, that led to me writing a short book uh, trying to elucidate uh, the modern disease of addiction, uh, you know, with with the Alcoholics Anonymous program. They had had a postulation, a theory of the disease going back to the 1930s when the program came about and come to find out since the 1980s, beginning with modern neuroscience, uh, the science is completely substantiated their original hypothesis of the disease, that it's an allergy, that certain people have an abnormal physical response to chemicals. My mom has a glass of wine. She stops. She goes to bed and lives her life, right? I get a box of Franzia and I drink it throughout the entirety of my day, right? (laughs) Like you don't need to be an addiction counselor to to figure out which one has an abnormal response. And, uh, you know, and and that uh, subsequent of this allergy, there's an obsession, right? And so there's the formation of deeply ingrained euphoric memory. And even when the person's not drinking or drugging, they're still consumed, right, by that idea, that memory, that liking experience. Oh, I want to go home again. I want to recreate that experience. And so despite any logic, right, irrationally, compulsively, because of that allergy, they go back to drinking and drugging. And so they contended that you could know freedom from the obsession. Of the mind through spiritual change. The only way to uh, you know out, outwin the allergy is to not put chemicals in your body, right? Um, I've healed from a hopeless state of mind and body. I've been walking a spiritual path, a sober path for 14 and a half years. But if I put vodka in my body today, like I will break out in irrational, compulsive alcohol use, right? My nucleus accumbens is, is permanently sensitized to respond to that way in alcohol. But through spiritual change to this day, I know freedom from the obsession of the mind like I you know life gets hard man I, I you got stuff on your plate I got stuff on my plate but what blows my mind and I think is an utter miracle is that even when I'm pushed to my edge in my mental illness in my challenges and my sleep deb- deprivation and my post-traumatic stress it hasn't occurred to me that a drink or a drug would you know would factor in right to be pushed to that much pain and suffering you know after drinking yourself to death? Like, how is that biologically possible that an individual can drink themselves to death and then live their lives as hard as they can and not even think about drinking or drugging, right? You know, like that is the power of spiritual principles of brotherhood and sisterhood and connectedness with other people. That's the power of getting outside of yourselves and orienting yourself with the universe as though it's maybe loving and maybe guiding, you know. Um, So that phenomenon is not really well defined in science, you know. Um, Yeah. There's a lot of fruit on the science of recovery. Um, You know, just a little bit about the science of of spirituality. There's a great book... I recommend to anybody that's interested and wants to nerd out on this there's a clinical psychologist researcher out of Columbia uh, University in New York City her name's Lisa Miller right and she's been studying the science of spirituality since her postdoc in the 90s so you know 25 years of this and um, come to find out that spirituality is physical my friends you know Um, there was a psychiatric epidemiologist Kenneth Kindler in the uh, 90s and so epidemiology is kind of the study of health conditions, the factors that play a part in them. And the gold standard is twin studies, right? Twins share the same genetic information. And so if you're studying a health condition, you can kind of parse out whether it's genetics or whether it's environment. And so what he did in the mid 90s, and he was the first one to do it, was he showed that spirituality is a a physical manifestation, whereas, um, you know, religion as as, and he defined it uh personal conservatism, you know, so like a, a you have a belief system, right? <laughs> it's kind of an abstract thing, right? As opposed to that, that's that's we're actually all wired for spirituality, right? And he actually did the math, and so your heritability, your genetic predisposition towards spirituality is about 30%. So some people, you know, are more genetically inclined towards being a being a you know, being a quarterback, right? They're 6'3, they're 220, and they're just genetically inclined towards being a quarterback, right? Some people are genetically inclined towards speaking multiple languages. But it goes to show that, you know, only 30% of our predisposition is genetically uh, conferred. So 70% of our capacity for spirituality is, is through our relationships, it's through our environment. And those are things by and large that are within our control, you know, uh, right? We're all products of our environment. So um, So building on, that Um, you know there's an interesting intersection where depression and spirituality in the brain have a common basis. You know, um, And they've done research, uh, Dr. Miller and some colleagues over at Yale, just doing brain imaging studies. And persons with depression um, up to about have a 29% higher thinning of, of the cerebral cortex on the right side. And so your cerebral cortex are most recently evolved part of the brain. This is is your sense of self. This is how you orient to the world. This is how you relate to other people. This is how we make decisions. We have values. We pursue them, right? It's a pretty important part of the brain. And so, you know, in depressed persons, um, you know, uh, you know, a, a tw- up to a 30% kind of thinning. And and so, right, we, we, we have a difficult time relating to the world in a more expansive, uplifting, and maybe spirited way because the faculties to do so put you at a deficit right kind of like the person with add has an underdevelopment of dopamine receptors in their prefrontal cortex um you know uh, some persons um you know are going to struggle struggle structurally to try and give the universe a chance um but we can you know um so uh, you know <laughs> we have a biological basis for spirituality, and one of the interesting things that Kindler found is that persons who identified as having a strong sense of spirituality it actually acts as a buffering effect to life's hardships, illness, divorce, illness, right? All of these things that we that we that we have to navigate. That spirituality actually acts as a physical buffer to the hardships of life, whereas conservatism. Or just religion didn't and so it goes to show that you can be religious and spiritual you can be spiritual but not religious however only the spirituality has a physical basis and only it correlates as a buffering factor with the hardships of life right you know I'm from Alabama <laughs> and uh you know they're there and you know I'm, I'm from there and and but there's a difference between having a belief and then you know and then seeking out a bunch of people all right you're with me all right all right now I feel safe you know and that was kind of my experience you know and I don't think religion is an intrinsically bad thing um you know per se I think God gets a bad rap sometimes I think it's the representatives of God that give God a bad name <laughs> you know and so uh, you know conservatism having a religion if that's a catalyst To trusting in the universe, you know, that's an awesome thing. If that's a catalyst to you loving other people unconditionally, if that's a catalyst to holding you accountable, to living in line with your own values and your principles, you know, then that's a beautiful thing, right? Like, that's a great thing. That's the stillness. You know, that's the peace that I felt in the church. Like, that that was the opportunity. Um, But you get a bunch of knucklehead people together. And, you know, we get compromised by fear and uncertainty and an illusion of, of security. All right, we're all together. All right, we're good, right? Um, and and uh, I'm not a theologian, you know? Uh, I love Jesus Christ. I, I love Sermon on the Mount. I love the Testament of Jesus Christ. And... Um, Um, And I I think it's about love. You know, I think it's about loving and expecting nothing in return. That it's it's an entire orientation to everything. That I'm going to approach you as though there is something beautiful and redeemable in everybody. Oh, man. And that's hard because we have... Enemy neighbors, and we have fear and we have prejudices, and and we get beefs and we get mad at the world, right? But I'm not really mad at the world. I'm just projecting my stuff onto you, right? You know, you know. Forgiveness is hard, you know. I try to remember, though, the Buddhists have a good one. They say anytime you get mad at your enemy neighbor, you just remember that they're a suffering, fallible person just like you. you And that doesn't mean that I co-sign their unskillfulness. If they're wrong, they're wrong, right? But it's so helpful to remember that we're all on equal footing, right? Like we're all unskillful knuckleheads (laughs) driven by fear and uncertainty and fallibility and so if I can remember that when I'm angry or irritated with somebody, it neutralizes that. And compassion is born, right? I was at a cub. And, and it's hard, right? Because you're living your life. You're stressed out. And, and things are crazier than ever in our cultural zeitgeist. It's kind of it's kind disgusting. It's kind of sad out there isn't it as I was checking out at cub right going through the self checkout and I was doing my deal and there was this mom and she had like a five-year-old and she was holding a two-year-old was in the car and she just starts cussing right and she is mad she is livid she's just like you know everything is just so pained and bad and 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 I'm kind of like I'm kind of like uncomfortable like she's dropping f-bombs and cussing out the kids and I'm like who does that you know and so my thoughts is like well you know to to take it personally right to assassinate her character well what a horrible person right (laughs) but but I but I stepped back you know figuratively and I was like I wonder what she's going through because nobody in their right mind nobody that is that is healthy that is thriving that is well supported that has resources nobody that has those things acts that way And I was like, I wonder what she's going through. I'm like, man, her nervous system's hyperreactive. Like, she's probably drowning in cortisol. I was like, I wonder what she doesn't have. You know, I wonder what pressure she's facing. I wonder if she has post-traumatic stress. She kind of reminds me of some of my clients that are just hyperreactive and they're just always boiling over, right? And I'm like, oh, man, she's probably sick you know like that's not her right that's her current manifestation but there are conditions that are you know that are bringing about what i'm seeing right now and it's unfortunate right so it doesn't make her behavior right right but we put it in context right we're all products of our environment right nobody's born on the on the space station right and it ends up a school shooter right and then they shoot down to earth and you're like what a mess right um you know so you know i'll leave you with this um you know the science of spirituality um you know sometimes we we think oh it's science so you know science be that name and you know scientists have their own dogma too right Seems like that's our that's our uh, that's our proclivity is towards uh, an illusion of certainty, and so I think we can be clumsy with that in dogma, in our spirituality, in our relationships with other, and even in science, right? That our proclivity is this sense of certainty and predictability in the world, because the fact of the matter is, is that none of it makes sense, and it's a mystery, and it's kind of scary, <laughs> you know. Uh, but if we can soften into that. You know like I tell my clients all the time like the trick is to soften into everything and the way that you do that is you take a deep inhale through your nose and you hold your anxiety, you hold your stress, you hold the pain, you hold the mystery and then you deeply exhale through your nose, right? You're going to activate your parasympathetic nervous system by way of something called your vagus nerve. You're going to activate your body mind. All right. This is your regenerative, your calm, your digestive, your connective nervous system. We're chronically stressed out, man. You know, stress is killing all of us. The nervous system has a gas pedal and it has a brake pedal. All right. The famed physiologist Robert Sapolsky, he points out in a beautiful book that the gas pedal wasn't designed to be Florida all the time, all right? But we live in a 24-7, 365 stress environment, right? And so I found a strong correlation between pumping the brakes, man. And there's a lot of ways to do that. All right. Like, and I'm just speaking from my experience, eat the chicken, spit out the bone. All right. I'm a 12 step guy. I'm a spiritual guy. I believe in a loving and guiding, uh, you know, universe, but like, I, I don't have it figured out. All right. Well, you know, take what works for you and leave the rest. I'm just testifying to my experience. And if something connects with you, that's awesome. Um, but some of the best fruit of my my experience in the spiritual realm has been this process of you know creating and cultivating stillness um tic is this beautiful zen buddhist monk he recently died earlier this year at the age of 95 i think truly awakened bodhisattva and he pointed out that enlightenment's not a destination guys like anytime we can stop Right? And really embrace our lived experience the good, the bad, the scary, the ugly, the beautiful. You know, like if we can just stop and look and hold in our hearts what we're experiencing, like that's enlightenment. So many of us dedicate ourselves to busyness and avoiding everything that we feel. So anytime you can stop, you know, and cultivate a stillness in your purse and just deeply inhale through your nose and deeply exhale and your person's going to go, you know, and if you can gently without judgment, without shame, if you can just tenderly embrace all of your experience and it's not easy, right? You know, I sit in meditation. I've been doing this for years, these last three four years just sitting in meditation and it's hard, man, because there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of trauma and there's a lot of uncertainty and I don't entirely know how to get where I want to go trying to free myself with some of the things that I'm dealing with and so I cry and it hurts and sometimes I'm numb, but what I've been taught is that enlightenment is softening into that too, you know, like this too. And so that's enlightenment, you know, that the cultivation of stillness, um, really paying attention to what's going on with you and with an open heart, kind of like a mother would hold her crying child. You know, I try to embrace the entirety of my lived experience in that spirit, you know, like it's going to be okay, even though I'm not entirely sure that it's going to be right. Stillness, my friends, stillness is the door through which God can enter the storm of my person. That's right. Stillness is the door through which God can enter the storm of our persons. So pay attention, Um, you know, cultivate stillness. Your mind will be crazy. The Buddhists call it monkey mind, you know, the waterfall. It's tough being still after, after striving and the chaos and the stress for years and years. I know, right? But that's why a community helps, right? We got a community of people here. We achieve together what I certainly could never achieve alone, right? I am the byproduct of my loving community. And to this day, I'm happy to pay the debt pain it forward trying to love freely and expect nothing in return Um, you know thus adding to the ever evolving chain of life and freedom um, even in the face of pain so thank you for having me here tonight and thank you for your time and your attention and your open hearts and thank you for everybody out there Um, it's been a pleasure hanging out with you and going on a rant
0: <laughs> Ooh, glory! That was awesome. If you want to check out Joe's resources, here they are. We have QR codes. Um, one of is a lecture. He has two books. Um, I love art and fashion and all that stuff too. I was checking out his, I'm a cat and I like beautiful things, and it reminded me of Banksy. Wow. <laughs> it was really awesome. So we'll leave this link up here. You guys can scan the QR codes and dive into his resources, connect with him, maybe find him on Facebook. Got a big Facebook community. I don't know if that's a connection for you guys, but. Um, Thank you so much for coming. That was so deep. That was so rich. I cried a couple times. (laughs) Oh, awesome. Bless you guys. And uh, we'll see you Tuesday.